Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, 22 through 47. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up of all that we are witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, you wouldn't believe how often I'm standing up here and somebody's reading the scripture and something new just jumps out and grabs. I've spent all week studying this passage and all of a sudden, boom, something right there. And so I'm just grateful uh, for the word of God and be able to study that with you this morning. Actually, it's been a while since we've been together. I've been out of town the last two weeks. Uh, and I've been really grateful for the men who have filled the pulpit for me in my absence. Um, two Sundays ago, my wife and I were traveling, and, and we actually missed church. Um, and, and let me tell you what, that, that week that I missed church, I just felt like this inner 
inner turmoil, right? There's a sense of striving and this unsettled discontentment uh, in my spirit. And really what it, what it showed me, because I don't miss church very often, because, you know, I, my job is to be here in church on Sundays. Uh, it, it made me realize how much our Sunday gatherings nourish my soul just offers a strength that I can't find anywhere else. No matter how much I read my Bible or, or listen to podcasts, there's something about being here together with God's people, the people that I know and that I love that feeds me. And, and in fact, I, I come to realize that, that missing, I don't have enough faith to miss Sunday gatherings. I don't know how some people do it. I don't know how people go weeks and weeks without coming to church because I just don't have enough faith to do that because there's something profound that happens on these Sundays. I'm so grateful uh, for them. And then the last Sunday, I, I had the opportunity uh, to visit an Acts 29 church down in, down in Kansas City, um, and it was great. It, it, was, it was so refreshing to just sit uh, with my brothers and sisters, kind of be anonymous and just be a nobody. Uh, nobody's depending on me to get up and say something profound or I don't have to worry about something going round, wrong and having to rush in to, 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 to save the day, so to speak. Uh, it was just so refreshing to me to hear the same gospel proclaimed and hear, hear the same songs that we sing sung there and, and people just rejoicing. But even as good as it was, it wasn't, it wasn't the same for me. Uh, as being here and worshiping with, with you guys. There, there's something about being in a room with people that you know and are known by that is edifying for our faith. For example, you, to sit in a pew and look down the row and know that there's somebody who, who's going through one of the hardest times of their life. And you can see that they're singing, they're responding, they're, they're proclaiming the goodness of God even in the mess uh, of their life. Or, or to sit there and see somebody who struggles with guilt and shame come up and receive the Lord's table in full confidence knowing that Jesus has taken away their sins. There's something about knowing the people you worship with that is absolutely uh, uh, nourishing for the soul. Uh, and, and I usually talk about how our liturgy and how our preaching shapes us. And yes, it, it definitely does. Uh, but I think there's even more nuance to our Sunday mornings than that. Um, to, to pick up on, on some of these things that are at play in the daily lives. You can only, you can only get that picture when you know the people you worship with. And so with all that said, I'm grateful to be back here in this room, to be behind this pulpit and to start uh, this new year together. If I, I didn't introduce myself, my name's Sam. I'm the pastor here. Uh, grateful to have you if you're a visitor. Um, today is actually a special day for us. You, you may have picked up on it on, on the way in. We had donuts today. We don't need some donuts, but today's a special do uh, day for us because um, our church turned two years old uh, we, we planted about two years ago, and God has been gracious to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, and, and two years old, I mean, there's churches in the city that are hundreds, or maybe not hundreds, but 100 plus years old. And so two years old may not seem like quite a big deal, but, but let me just frame this up for you here, because we're actually going against the grain here as a church plant from, from two perspectives. First of all, there's the, the cultural perspective. We live in a day and age where God is becoming uh, less and less relevant, so it seems, Technology and education have sort of got into our mind and convinced us that God isn't as essential as what he used to be. For example, we've got social media that allows us to be omnipresent, 
right? Do you ever realize that? Like you, you get to see people's feeds and it's like you're being in different places at different times. You're kind of like God in that sense or, or our, our apps and our education that, that gives us power and there's a sense knowledge is power and so the more we know, the more sense of power that we have or, or even, the fact, um, even the fact that Google has all the answers we could ever need, right? And so there's this current of the culture that tells us that God isn't necessary in some ways, but here we are proclaiming that there's nothing more necessary, there's nothing more foundational than God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's pretty cool. The second thing that's, that's pretty cool is the fact that most churches, just in the, in the age of the institution of the church, the overall trend of the church is declining, uh, across the nation, uh, in North America specifically. Um, I have some statistics here. Six to 10,000 churches close every year. That's roughly 100 churches a week closing their doors. Um, church attendance is down 13% over the last 30 years. Now, the population keeps increasing, but church Attendance keeps going down. And so there's something special happening here. God's doing something very special here in the church. The fact that we're here, that God's growing us, uh, that we're still at it, that we love each other, that we love the gospel. And so I just wanna take a little bit of time um, to, to just rejoice and what God has done in 2008 um, as a young church who loves the Bible, who, who loves prayer, who loves the gospel, um, who, who are people who are committed to living life in community and on mission, that we're committed to growing in the gospel and loving and renewing our cities for the glory of God. It's honestly a miracle that we are here and last year, about this time, I stood up here and I shared some hopes and some goals that I had for us as a church in 2018 that I was praying, that we as a church were praying for and working toward. Uh, and, and we stand here at the end of 2018, we kind of look back and, and there's some things that haven't materialized yet. And, and that's fine. It's all in God's timing. He's gonna bring about what needs to be brought about at the right time. But there are some things that we have been praying for that God has done and we ought to rejoice in them. And so today, I wanna to take an intermission from the book of Revelation. We've been preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the daunting book of Revelation. Uh, we're gonna take a pause for that and to, to reflect and rejoice in 2018 and to look forward at what, what I believe God has in store for us in 2019. And so to kind of create some context for you as we kind of work through and rejoice in 2018, let me just say this briefly. 2017 was a great year, the year we planted our church, but it was also a very disorienting year. A lot of cool stuff happened. God gave us this building and there was a lot of chaos that surrounded that. Uh, and so the aim of 2018 was for us to reestablish a disciple-making culture. That's what we exist for, to make disciples who make disciples. And one of the things that helped us launch this, this sort of new era or, or a reclaimed era in our church was the sermon series we preached through called Recalibrate, where we really just focused in on our identities that we receive from God and the gospel, who we are as, as family, as missionary, as servants and learners, uh, and the, uh, the rhythms that we live into as, as we possess this identity. And so just a couple of things under the big umbrellas here, as, as family, I think in 2018, we shared more life together 
uh, had more birthday parties. We opened up our homes more um, in 2018 than we did in 2017. Our, our MCs, um, mo- I think every MC experienced some sort of refreshing season um, where, where people were recommitted and getting to know each other at a deeper level. Nearly 90% of the people who show up on Sunday mornings are now involved in a missional community, which is awesome. Uh, we were able to baptize three people. We had three parent-child dedications together with Davenport Church across the river. Uh, we had a combined 14 baptisms and six parent-child dedications, which is exciting. We as Sacred City Church Moline welcomed three new members into our covenant church family uh, in the identity of missionary and servants because there's a lot of overlap between those two identities. We had a year as, as missional communities where the missions, the group missions, so just so if you don't know, a missional community is a group of people from our church who are ordinary Christians, commit to living in community and on mission together, studying God's word, praying for one another, uh, loving each other in really tan- tangible ways, becoming a gospel family. But we also have a people and a place that we love and serve and bless. We're on mission to each, each one uh, of our missional communities. Our missional communities probably had the best year of group mission that we've ever had. Uh, we've stepped up and met some big needs in our city. Um, really exciting to be used by God in that capacity. Uh, we hosted our first vacation Bible school this summer. A lot of preschoolers came and joined us. It was a lot of fun uh, getting to know people in our city, in our neighborhoods. Um, we had a lot of opportunities to uh, work on projects here as a church to serve together to, 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 to improve the building and parts of our neighborhood. We, we, uh, we provided meals for the, the families who had welcomed new babies this year, and there's a lot of meals there. I, I didn't actually sit down and count, but I would bet that there are probably at least somewhere between 75 and 100 meals provided, just given away. And that, I think that's amazing. That, that means like one out of every three days, we're given some food away, which is cool. Um, as learners, this may not be a big deal to you, but to me it is. Our bookstore sold four times more books than last year. And listen, this is not about the revenue here. We're not making money off of these books. This is just a testament that people are grabbing literature and wanting to learn and grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We, we hosted a relational soul seminar trying to understand how we relate to other people and what it looks like to live in some of these identities and the way that God's wired us. Um, together as a church, we studied uh, some great books of the Bible. We finished our sermon series in First Peter. We studied the book of Ecclesiastes. We studied the Lord's Prayer together. We had a marriage series going through uh, chapter five of the book of Ephesians, and we are right now halfway through the book of Revelation. So there, there's a lot of, of evidence that God's been at work sort of solidifying us in our identities as family, as missionaries, as servants, and as learners, and I just wanna rejoice in that. And at the same time, we look back and we see uh, where we've welcomed new faces. We're just so glad to have new people with us in the new year, but we've also sadly seen some loved faces uh, go on. Um, But through all of that, we've maintained a steady Sunday attendance, which has been Uh, awesome. We multiplied from three missional communities spread out the Illinois side of the Quad Cities, even all the way down to Alita. We launched a missional community in Alita, which was awesome. Um, And several people in the launching of these new missional communities have stepped up uh, to either become missional community leaders or to host these missional communities in their homes. 
Financially, as a church, we are weaning off outside support. As a, as a church plant, we, we are usually under-resourced with, within our own context, but, but we have partnership with other churches that pour into us and are committed to seeing churches being planted. And so we've started being weaned off of the outside support and getting closer to becoming a self-sustaining church. Uh, and even doing that, we've given away nearly $8,000 to church planting. That, that's phenomenal. As a small church, $8,000 has gone to church planting in Mwamba, Kenya, um, down in Muscuta, Illinois, and the Acts 29 Global Fund, where we're seeing churches being planted to the glory of God. And so from a metric standpoint, I don't know if you're still with me here, from a, a metric standpoint, it's been, it's been a pretty good year. There, there's a lot to rejoice over, and God has been very gracious to us every step of the way. But to me, what's even better than the numbers, what's even more exciting than, than hearing you know, our church growing and multiplying of missional communities are the stories that are represented inside of those numbers. The stories where, where God is at work in people's lives, generating faith and transforming lives. I would venture to say that, that few people are the same today in their walk with Jesus as they were a year ago. And that's simply because Jesus is alive. That his gospel is still good news and it's very relevant to people in 2018 and coming up on 2019. Listen, and I think that, that I could bring up uh, every missional community leader and they could probably rattle off at least a dozen evidences of grace where God's really done something special in the, in the context of the last year. And in fact, we, we do this thing uh, every quarter where we gather together between two churches uh, to have an MC celebration to share these evidences of grace on a regular basis. And so there's stories here in this church where God is at work. And so I'm just humbled, I'm grateful for you, for what God is doing in you and through you in 2018. And so would you just join me in a prayer of thanksgiving, all right? And, and praise God for what he's done. Father, uh, you are good. That, that is in your DNA. That is uh, of, the es of your own essence. And your goodness just oozes out of you. And it finds its way to rest upon your people, Father. And, and there's, a, there's, in a very real sense, if there's ever a moment where we doubt your goodness, we can, we can just look down the pew. We can look and see how you're at work in other people's lives, Father, how you've been at work uh, in this church and how you're using us uh, for the sake of, of renewing your cities, uh, for the advancement of the kingdom of God here in the Quad Cities. And so we wanna just give all of the praise back to you, Father. We acknowledge that, that none of the stuff that we're rejoicing in could have been done by our own skill, by our own strength. Father, this is something uh, that, that we attribute to your spirit and a, and a unique movement of your spirit. And Father, as we rejoice in 2018, we look forward to 2019, knowing that for every day that we, we found new mercies in 2018, there's another day like that in 2019 that your grace is sufficient to sustain us through this next year. Whatever trials or storms may come, Father, you are always good. That's our, that's our one sure hope. 
And so, Father, we praise you and give you thanks and give you the glory. And, Father, we ask that your spirit would be with us now. Would you stir our hearts with a deeper affection for you and your gospel, with a, with a zeal for mission, to live out uh, as, as our identity as family and missionaries and servants and learners here in the Quad Cities, and that you would continue doing a good work among your people. Father, we ask this for our good and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we've reflected, we've rejoiced in 2018. Uh, and I would just encourage you when you're, when you're sitting down with your missional communities uh, over the course of these next couple of weeks, let, let's, let's rejoice in some of these really specific things together. But, but now I, wanted, I want us to turn forward uh, and look ahead at what 2019 might hold for us as a church. Um, the new year always holds new opportunities, uh, new hopes, new dreams. I hope maybe you've sat down and sort of worked through and thought through some of these on a personal level, right? Because I think it's always good for us to have something to aspire to, to work to, to, to invest yourself in, whether that be fitness goals or spiritual goals or professional goals or family goals, whatever, whatever shape those goals might take, it's always good for us to aspire uh, uh, towards something bigger than ourselves. And really, I think it's just part of living as disciples, becoming more Christ-like in every arena of our lives. But for a church, as we look forward at goals, it's hard for us uh, to, to lay out quantifiable goals as a church. Okay, I can't say, well, church, at this time next year, I want us to be this sanctified, or, or I want us to be this, to believe this strongly in our faith. It's hard to measure those things unless it's a goal that we can use numbers to, to quantify, like people in the seats or, or financial goals or baptism numbers. But, but I think numbers are only, are only one indicator. It's an important indicator. It's not the most important indicator of health of a church. And that's not to say we should abandon our numbers and not, not keep track of who's here and keep praying that God would add to our numbers. Uh, and honestly, I have plenty of, of numbers in my head that I, I'm praying that God would, would create. But I think there's a way to pursue numbers, especially when it relates to spiritual matters that is unhelpful and unhealthy. And so instead of offering numbers as a target for us to aim to in 2019, what, what I would like to offer is a bigger vision for us to aspire to in 2019. Now, this vision doesn't require a change in our mission, does not require a change in our philosophy of ministry, in our strategies, in the programs we offer. It does not involve a giving campaign. This new vision is not a pivot into a, a new direction or a different direction. It's, in fact, this new vision is a recommitment to our original mission. It's a, a renewing vision, I would say. Uh, we have always been committed to this mission, making disciples, planting churches, and renewing our cities. And, and we still think that the only way to make disciples which, which we would say people are, disciples are people who make disciples and plant churches and renew the city. 
The only way to make disciples is in community and on mission. That's why we do church the way that we do church, that we're organized not just around our Sunday mornings, but our missional communities play such a large role in living out our identities as family missionary servants and learners. That's forever what Sacred City Church is about. And that's because we believe that's what Jesus was all about. That's how Jesus went about making disciples. So there are no big changes coming down the path. And so if you're looking for something different, then this probably isn't gonna be the church for you. And the only way that I can say that is because I'm actually, I'm more committed to what God is doing here and the vision of our church than I am the, the numbers. And so rather than focusing on quantitative Right, throwing out a bunch of numbers that you'll probably forget in a couple hours anyway. What, I, what I'd like to focus on uh, are some qualitative characteristics. I want to ask the question, what kind of church should we become in 2019? What, what kind of a culture, what kind of a Christian church culture do we want to embody in this next year? When people step into this space... When people step into our living rooms and our missional communities, what do they leave talking about? What is it that we become known for? As the opening credits of 2019 are, are still rolling, we're gonna turn to Acts chapter two to answer this question. Now, starting our year out in Acts chapter two has become kind of a tradition for us. I think it's probably keep up this tradition because this, this passage is sort of a home base. It's, it offers us a little bit of a reset as a church. And it's for a good reason because right here in Acts chapter two, this is basically the origin story of the Christian church. This is the beginning of the church age. So just for a little bit of context, if you're unfamiliar with where we're at here in the Bible, uh, three and a half-ish years prior to what we're about to read here in Acts chapter two, um, Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene. Okay, it's kind of a big deal. I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. But, but, but for the, the 30 years before that, Jesus was basically anonymous. He was working as a carpenter with his stepdad. Nobody really knew of him. He was living incognito as the savior of the world. But then something happened, right? Uh, his ministry became public. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He, he saw Jesus walking by the Jordan River, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And from that moment on, Jesus spent the rest of his life making his identity, making his purpose known to anybody who would open his ears to him. And Jesus spent his ministry proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. And this is really a twofold deal where, where, first of all, Jesus is overthrowing the darkness that sin and death and evil have been suppressing the earth and Jesus is overthrowing its rule. But now he is, he is also offering a new life, life in the kingdom of God, forgiving sinners and granting them access to the life of abundance. And Jesus, in his ministry, he didn't just talk about the kingdom. He didn't just come with theoretical words. Jesus came with power. 
He demonstrated the kingdom of God with signs and wonders and miracles. He turned water into wine. He took fish and loaves and multiplied them to feed a multitude. He healed numerous sick. He calmed the raging storm. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. And every act of Jesus' ministry provided humanity with, with a peephole to look into, to, to, to break the threshold of this world and what we know as the natural order and to show people what the kingdom of God is like. And then, in the ultimate act of sacrificial love, Jesus died on a cross to forgive sinners. See, this is, this is like the access granted card. Jesus opens up the door for us to the kingdom of God so that any and all who would place their trust in him as their Lord and Savior and receive his grace would be admitted into God's kingdom. Now, in his ministry, while Jesus, you know, before he was killed and all, Jesus had 12 disciples who basically wandered around with him from city to city. And as they followed Jesus, Jesus was training them, really, and they probably didn't know it. He was training them to carry on the message of the kingdom after he had gone on. And in this training, there were no classrooms, there was no Sunday school program, there was no curriculum. They learned on the go. Jesus opened up the Bible and he opened up his life to them and is showing him the message of the kingdom. And he would do this in the normal rhythms of life on the go. And this is what we, what we think missional community is about. We're, we're not necessarily primarily about getting together to study curriculum. We're together to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus in the everyday normal patterns and rhythms of life. But when this whole cross business happened, right, when Jesus was captured, all of these buddies that Jesus had suddenly became cowards. At best, his, his buddy Peter, um, he turned around and, and, and denied even knowing Jesus three different times, while everybody else ran away and hid because they were afraid that they would be killed next just in being associated with Jesus. In doing so, they left Jesus to fend for himself. Now, Jesus went to the cross, bore the sins of humanity, he was placed in a grave, and on the third day, he rose again, and he appeared to these disciples who had betrayed him and ran and hid. And seeing the resurrected Jesus, uh, it was definitely comforting for them, at least on, on one degree, that they, they know they didn't waste the last three and a half years of their life following some lunatic around, right? I mean... When you think about it, if you're following a guy around for three years and all of a sudden he gets killed and you're like, uh, what now? You could easily internalize that as I just wasted a lot of time. But Jesus shows up and, and the resurrection proves that, that everything that Jesus was talking about was true. That they weren't wasting their time. All of this stuff was becoming a reality and Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah that God had promised his people all the way back since the beginning of the Old Testament. But even in seeing the resurrected Jesus, doubting Thomas, didn't even believe it was Jesus, but Jesus said, hey, put your, put your fingers in the scars of my hand and place your fingers in the scar of my side. 
And, and even though they, they touched him and saw Jesus back in his resurrected flesh, they were still kind of a timid crew. They, they spent the next 40 or so days sort of isolated and under wraps. That is until the day of Pentecost, which is where we find ourselves in the beginning of the book of Acts. As Jesus ascended to heaven to take the right hand of God, he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to be a helper to empower his disciples for the ministry and the mission that he had been calling them to. And so we see at the beginning of Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit falls on his disciples. They, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and these cowardly man boys become bold men who scripture says are responsible for turning the world upside down. Ordinary fishermen. And, and it's here we see the collision of the gospel message, the power that the gospel has, and the power of the Holy Spirit come together to radically transform Jesus' followers. It's like these cowards now have a, a spine of steel, and they're ready to go toe-to-toe with some of the most threatening people that they could face and so here it is in chapter two. We're halfway through, actually. We're kind of jumping in right in the middle um, of verse 22 of chapter two, right in the middle of Peter's famous Pentecost sermon. Now, wrap your minds around this for a moment. This is Peter's first ever sermon, okay? As a relatively young preacher, I get butterflies thinking that somebody's gonna go back and listen to my first sermon. I, in fact, I don't recommend it at all. But here we are, here we are looking at Peter's very first sermon. And man, let me tell you, he hits it out of the park. And, and it's not to his credit, it's the spirit who's speaking through him. Uh, and, and look at this, chapter 22, the, the first things that's coming off of his lips here in his sermon. He says, men of Israel, hear, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. The first word off of Peter's lips is Jesus. If you ever doubt for one moment what the main thrust of the Christian message is, it's that Jesus came, that Jesus is who he says he is. And that honestly is what this church is about and what we forever will be about. It's all about Jesus. And then he goes on continuing why Jesus is so important. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and sign that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Hey, he's saying, hey, look, you've seen Jesus. You saw what he did. This Jesus delivered up according to, I love this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Look, Jesus was not a mistake. Anything that happened in Jesus' life and his life, death, and resurrection was not by accident. This was by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that men would go on to crucify him. It says, you crucified, and 
This is where Peter's a little bit bold. I mean, he's super bold here because he's pointing the finger at these men of Israel and said, this Jesus that you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. And this is just so sweet because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If you wanna feel just how weak you are in your flesh, wait till you get to your deathbed. You can't stop it. There's no stop, stopping death. You can't chase death away with a stick. But here, we see Jesus was not able to be held down by it. That's how powerful he was. And, and David goes on, and uh, he's quoting David here. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Basically, what's happening here, there's, there's a fulfillment of the prophecy. That, that someone, the Messiah that had been prophesied to David and to Abraham and to Noah and to even all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the, the snake crusher would come and crush the snake once and for all. He's saying, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter keeps going on in his sermon. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us today. He's saying, hey, look, David, he was a great man, but look, he's still dead. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would be that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his, his flesh see corruption. Now he's going back to Jesus here. This is Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are a witness, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received or received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Basically, he's like, look, I'm standing before you. I was once a coward, but the Spirit of God has come into me, and now I'm speaking with power. For David did not ascend into the heavens, for he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your foothold, or your footstool, foothold, what is that? And then this, this is, this is key here. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now this is really the main thrust of Peter's message here in, in verse 36. That Jesus is both Lord and Christ. But, but what does that mean? That sounds like some Christianese to us. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord and Christ? Well, to refer to somebody as Lord is to say that they hold authority. That, they're, that they're, they have a power and you yourself are underneath or subject to that power. That there's dominion. That whoever is Lord has the ability to govern and to lead and direct people as that Lord sees fit. Now, for the Jews, if you go back in the Old Testament, all over the place, they talk about God as Lord. They observe God the Father as the Lord, the authoritarian uh, presence and power over all of creation. So they know God is Lord. But here, Peter is saying something absolutely profound. He's saying that Jesus is of the same essence as God. 
Now, Jesus tells us this in the Great Commission as he's about to be, uh, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That Jesus contains this lordship, shares in the lordship of God the Father. And you can even see that in the way that the language that King David prophetically uses where he says, my Lord, meaning God the Father said to my Lord, that is Jesus the Son, sit at my right hand. This, this is mind-blowing to, to, to the Jewish people. That God the Father is Lord, but God the Son is Lord too. But he's also saying that Jesus is also the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? Jesus Christ, it just kind of rolls off the tip of the tongue. It's not his last name, it's a title. It's something that's ascribed to him. And the word Christ means anointed one. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, and it's so important for us to understand the New Testament within the context of the Old Testament, but all throughout the Old Testament, God was making promises to his people that there would be a Messiah, a Savior who would come into the world and rescue them, to lift them out from their folly and their misery and the mess of their sin. And so Peter is saying that, that okay, Jesus is God, but he's also the Savior, that God himself put on flesh and entered into this world to become our savior. And, and, and by, by faith in Jesus and his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his powerful resurrection, God's people are saved. This is new. Never before have these two things been put together, that, that Jesus is Lord, he is of God, but he is, he is also savior. Now, when you think about this, this is a pretty radical claim. Like, you, you can't be neutral to Jesus' claim that he is both Lord and Savior. You, you either have to, to embrace it and say, yes, he is my Lord, he is my Savior, or you have to reject it. There, there's no neutral ground here. And you might say, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know about this Jesus is my Lord and Savior stuff, but I think he was a good teacher, right? He, he had a lot of good stuff, ethical and moral things to say. I think that we can abide by his teachings, but, but I don't know so much about this Lord and Savior stuff. See, even, even that mentality about Jesus is a way of rejecting Jesus because you're saying he's not actually who he says he is. See, to embrace Jesus means that we understand that he is both my Lord, that he commands my destiny, that, that he's my guiding light, he governs my life, but he's also my savior. That aside from him, I have no other hope. And, and when you believe that Jesus is your Lord and savior, this, this changes your life. There are serious implications for you. You, you look to him as your only hope. See, it's, it's, it's coming to the reality that you cannot make yourself right with God. No matter how good you are, no matter how moral of a life you live, no matter how much money you give to the church, no matter what, you cannot make yourself right with God. You have to claim to Jesus. It's because his blood was shed and it washes me and cleanses me that I'm saved. 
And when you see Jesus as your savior, you're willing to say, you know what? You laid your life down for me. I gladly laid down my life for you. That I'll go where you send me. I'll do what you tell me to do. I'll live according to your ways. Now, as we keep reading here in Acts chapter two, what we're seeing are the first moments of people embracing Jesus as Lord and Christ. Take a, take a look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, this is, this is profound. See, God is using the message that Peter preached to save the people who are responsible for killing Jesus. And listen, he's still doing that today. Every sinner is responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. There's a hymn that says, it was my sin, it was our sin that held him there on the cross. See, Jesus, we were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, that he died in my place. He died in your place. And when you see this act of sacrificial love that, that God himself would lay down his life for you, and when you see that for what it is, you're cut to the heart. And this question bubbles up, how do I get in on this? And Peter answers this question in verse 38. He says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. There, there's no exclusions here. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And Peter goes on and he keeps sharing this message, not, not just with this group of people, but he keeps going. And with, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And look, God's word does not return void. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. That's a, that's a declaration of faith, that I believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is amazing. Could you imagine if 3,000 people showed up to church next week? Crazy. Now, so that, what we saw right there is like the first few moments of what coming to faith looks like. And it continues on sort of showing us, it gives us a vision of what this new life of faith looks like day to day. This is what it looks like to live as if Jesus is Lord and Savior, right? This is what it looks like if you receive the Holy Spirit and how your life radically changes. Take a look at verse 42. This is some of my favorite verses in scriptures. Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul. 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds. All they're generous as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I gave a disclaimer a little bit ago about numbers, and obviously numbers matter because here, twice within a very short uh, context, we see God adding people to their numbers. And there's so much we can really dive into here in, in this brief passage and pull out and say, this is the kind of church, aside from the numbers, aside from growing and having a faithful witness in our city, that, that we could say, hey, this is what it should look like for us to be a church in, in 2019. Yes, we should be devoted to scripture and the prayers and fellowship and be generous and be known and knowing of others and, and to be benevolent and worshipful and thankful. Yes to all of that. But, but where my focus, where my prayers, and I hope your prayers and your focus joins me in 2019, really lands is in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Just think about, what would it be like if awe filled every soul in this church? Now, I, I love this three-letter word because it's packed with nuance. See, in one sense, it, it can be used in kind of multiple different ways, but in one sense, awe has, carries this notion of reverence. So, some commentaries say the sense of awe is a reverent fear of God. Like knowing that you're standing in the midst of holiness and, you, and there's nothing you can do but have this, like this, this compulsion to bow down in worship. That, that you see something that is truly beautiful and, and awesome and the only response that you can have is to, to crumple. But there's also a sense of wonder that the word awe carries. This, this sense of astonishment, the sense of, your jaw dropping in amazement. It's to be captivated, to be blown away, to, to, to be baffled and wondering, how in the world is this true? You might look at this passage and think, well, you know, they're in awe because the apostles are doing all kinds of signs and wonders. It's, it's miraculous stuff, really. Now, surely there is a sense of awe there. There's, there's something supernatural happening through the apostles. But what is most awe-provoking among these people isn't the things that they do with their own hands or are empowered to do. What's most uh, enrapturing is, is the message of the gospel, that God himself would put on flesh so that man would kill him and then he would still work for their good in saving sinners. I, I, the fact that God died for his enemies, people that were hostile and indifferent toward him. 
See, this gospel, this truth of what God is doing through Christ and the cross, it is so wonderful, so profound, so special, that in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told that angels long to look into this gospel. Like this, this is a gospel message that's only available to humans. Angels, once they fall away from grace, once they fall away and turn their back on God, there's no redemption for them. They, they've joined Satan and his army. And so angels are standing there and looking, how can God be so merciful to the people who turn their back on him? And here we are. I think it's not odd. Unfortunately, it's pretty common that we would take this for granted, that, that we lose sight of what God has done for us in Christ. That, that like Revelation 2 uh, admonishes the church in Ephesus, that they lost their first love. Now, just think of this for a moment. Like, when you get married, I don't know, men, maybe you can relate to this, but when you saw your bride walking down the aisle, you just well up. I mean, like, it, it, it's fun to watch. It's fun to be a pastor and to sit up here with, with this, this groom standing here watching his bride come down the aisle, and you can tell he just wants to weep like a baby. And there's this sense of, oh, man, she's beautiful. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with this woman. God is so gracious to me. Right? There's a sense of being captured by this woman. But as year five, year 10, year 15, year 30 goes on, it's pretty easy to lose that sense of wonder. I mean, you really have to fight for it, do you not? See, I think the same is true in our Christian walk. You come to Jesus and you get fired up and you're ready to save the world for Christ and live your life, go be a missionary or whatever it is you wanna be. But then you kinda become indifferent. It becomes sort of normal or you, it seems repetitious. So to live in awe of Christ day by day requires intentionality. It's not that the message changes. I think that our hearts have a doling sense to us, that, that we hear it and it just becomes another series of words. But, but to, to really give ourselves to awe requires intentionality. And awe of God begins with looking to Christ. To, to, to really wrestling with the gospel of salvation and seeing how, God, awesome, how awesome God is that he would save us sinners. But all of God doesn't end there. Listen, one of the great things of, of, of coming to faith is that we're given a new heart, we're given new eyes, a new mind. We, we, give, we get new eyes to see God's awesomeness, to see his fingerprints and his handiwork all around us. There's a sense where we gain spiritual sight so we can, we can recount evidences of grace. It's like our Bibles become a magnifying glass that shines the light on what God has done. And here's, here's what I'm excited about to finish off the book of Revelation. Because I, I think there's something awe-inspiring about the book of Revelation. We can see, we can see this awesomeness in God's creation that all the beauty that we see, whether it be the white snow or the unique animals or, or the trees and all that other stuff. Here, one of my favorite things, I'm not really like an animal nerd. I never wanted to be a vet or anything. And if you're a vet, I'm not 
trying to downplay what you're doing. That was poorly worded. But listen, one of my favorite things to do is watch documentaries. Like right now I'm on Blue Planet 2. And just seeing God's creativity in some of the most bizarre animals. Like I'm not joking. Some of these things, I don't even know how God thought of these things. But whenever I see them, I'm like, wow, that animal is unique. And then my next reaction is, wow, God is, what a creator. We can see the awe, the splendor, the glory, the beauty, even in his creation, and and then to be in relationship with other people. We see how God is at work in other people's lives, and it's not just like, oh, God's doing something cool in my life. It's like, wow, he's doing something in your life too? So we see this awe for God's people, to be in awe of God and what he's done. And when you're captivated by something when you're really just shooken up about something awesome, action will naturally flow out of that. It reshapes your life. You don't experience something awe-inspiring and then go on to pretend like nothing ever happened. You don't stand on the Grand Canyon and forget about it the next day. It shapes you. It shapes your imagination. See, this is why the church looks the way that it looks in in those verses 42 through 47. People weren't like that before they knew Jesus. But then here they experience the awesomeness of the gospel, and now they're living in a way that reflects that. And they're not doing this out of white-knuckled duty. This is a natural expression. They've been captivated. They've been inspired by the gospel. They, They understand their identity as family and missionaries and servants and learners. And now their lives show that they're living in awe of God. In fact, I I would even say that if our lives don't in some capacity resemble what's going on in in, in verses 42 through 47, then it's probably an indicator that we're not living in awe of God and his gospel. And there's no shortcuts to this. I I can't just say, you know, give this on a piece of paper and say, go go do this now. there's There's no shortcuts to living like this. We have to be just enthralled with the awesomeness of God. But here's my last thing as I'm I'm closing up. Not only does living in awe transform your life, but you desire to share it with the people around you. You you experience something awesome and you're gonna talk about it. Think about it if you found a new restaurant or found a new vacation spot and you just love this place. You're naturally gonna tell people about it. You're gonna broadcast it on social media. You won't stop talking about it. See, if this is true of something as trivial as a restaurant or a vacation spot, how much more so should we be talking about God's grace and his goodness to us in Christ? See, this awe that we have for Jesus fuels our mission. And I think if if there's a place in our life where we're stagnant in mission, where we're not telling people or demonstrating to people the goodness of Christ, it's probably because we've lost our sense of awe. And I know there's objections here, but pastor, I I don't know how to talk about my faith. And talking about it makes me uncomfortable. I feel like I'm gonna be labeled as a weirdo. And listen, I, I totally understand. 
I can stand up here in a pulpit every Sunday and preach the word of God to you, but, but when I get into context of sort of uh, informal setting and I'm talking with unbelievers, I feel so weird sharing my faith. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to, I'm not, I can't even stand up here and tell you that I'm a model example of how to do this right. I'm not. But listen, this is what I know for sure. God's power is not exhausted at the cross. It is not exhausted. Verse 43b, the, the second part of that, where we're seeing these mighty wonders and signs being done through the apostles, tells me how the Holy, and Holy Spirit empowered normal people for mission. It's telling me that if, if the Holy Spirit could empower the apostles to do the miraculous, to do the supernatural, you can bet that the Holy Spirit can and will give us the words to speak, to witness to the awesomeness of Jesus. And that through us normal, ordinary, clumsy, dorky people, God can demonstrate and communicate how awesome he is and lead other people to a saving faith. And listen, there's one thing, the main thing that I'm committed to in 2019, personally, that I won't stop bugging God for a heart that really cares about the lost that really has a burden to share how good and gracious God is. And as a church, I pray that we'd never stop bugging God about, about bringing new people, to see people come to a saving faith of God and his grace, to see people stand up here and repent of their sin and be baptized and say, Jesus is my Lord and my Christ. And so church, my prayer is that we collectively, in 2019, would be more in awe of God than we have ever been in our entire lives. I pray that we'd be captivated by him. I pray that there would not be a day where we just go, oh my goodness, God, you are so good. And the emphasis of this goodness, experiencing this awe, I pray that we would grow as evangelists, as, as missionaries, that we'd be equipped and zealous and relying on the Holy Spirit to empower us to proclaim the gospel in our relationships, be it as our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, so that every single person who calls Sacred City Church their home can say, I shared my faith. I made an invitation to at least one person this year. That, that I trusted that the Spirit of God was in me and working through me in a way to, to communicate the goodness of Christ. But realize that my call to action, my call to mission is first and foremost grounded in us being in awe, that awe would come upon every soul here. That God would reveal the glories and excellencies of Christ to us. Now, Jesus was captivated by the Father. I, I, if Jesus wasn't captivated by, by the glory and the grace of our heavenly Father, I don't think Jesus would have put on flesh to come down here. But Jesus was captivated by God. He said, not, not my will be done, but, but yours be done. And he didn't just come down here with a message, but he came down as the message himself. 
That his body broken and his blood shed declared the love and the grace of God the Father. That there is a new life available to any and to all who would come. I love this. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We come to the Lord's table today to celebrate, to give thanks for the fact that God is calling sinners back to himself. That, that, God, that, that the body of Christ that is broken and the blood of Christ that was shed proclaims that God has made a grace available to save those, any and all, who had put their trust in him. And in our invitation to the Lord's table, isn't just, it's not just an invitation to come and consume It's an invitation to come and be consumed. It's to be enraptured, to be invited into an awe and a glory and a splendor that that stirs us deep inside to become missionaries, to proclaim the love of God. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Without him, we are nothing. So, Father, will you take my meager words this morning? Would you amplify them with the truth of your glory? Would you give us a vision, give, stir our imagination, uh, and, and show us just how awesome you are? And, Father, would we walk out of here today uh, people who are praying for the lost in our city? Would we walk out of here a people who are just infatuated with you? And, Father, would you add to our numbers? Add to the stories of this church, of people who are being saved. And we ask this with confidence and boldness in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.